From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thank you so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Ace McKay, handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window. And it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Friday, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, Jack. Listen, we've got Ralph from Cleveland, Ohio, who has held on from the last program, and we are not going to make Ralph hold on any longer. He's listening on the EWTN app. Ralph, thanks for holding through the break. You're on with Colin Donovan. Uh, Good afternoon. Thank you so much for uh, letting me hold. I have a question. I read a a, a quick article from a priest on can non-Catholics go to heaven. Of course, I believe that beforehand, and he confirmed that non-Catholics can go to heaven. And my question is, what about uh, the non-Catholic, the, how they get around the, the mortal sin, you know, dying with mortal sin? Say they're really, they spiritual, work, virtual, uh, virtuous life, <clears throat> and mm-hmm. then, um, but in, they had some non-discretions when they were younger or something like that, which were classified as, as mortal sin of some sort. So how do they get into heaven? And if, if that, if they're getting into heaven with, uh, I'm going to call it, um, <laughs> you know, free, easy grace, if you would, uh, why are we Catholics held to a higher standard, if you would? Uh, why don't we all just kind of bail out mm-hmm. and say, let's go to this sure. prosperity gospel church, and, uh, you know, everything will be fine, and they never heard of mortal sins, and, you know, we don't, and, you know, even if they don't go to uh, services on Sunday, that may not be a big deal. And sure. what about falling away Catholics who, uh, who knew the faith, and were brought up in the faith, but then... Well, that's got about an hour's worth of show there. (laughs) So you just took up open line uh, for today, and, uh, well, I'll try to get to those a little bit expeditiously so others can get calls in, too. Uh, I I think the the main thing is, I I think it's actually the reverse. Uh, They don't have the easier way. They have the harder way. Christ established a church, and he gave it the means so that the graces of the redemption could be distributed in every time and every place. And of course, we know historically in the 2000 years, the church has gone to most, most places. In some places like China and, and Japan, they were kicked out. Uh, we are certainly in Japan. We are in China, although that is clearly a difficult place for the church. Uh, haven't penetrated much most of the Southeast Asian countries other than Vietnam where the French were in there. But nonetheless, the point is that 
this fulfills the commission which Christ gave to the apostles and thereby to the church as a whole. And so in doing that, for example, let's take the case of forgiveness of sins. The church uh, teaches that, for instance, under the old law, there was the Ten Commandments under the Old Covenant. There was mortal sin under the Old Covenant. These are not new categories. They are cat- means things which we do with full knowledge and intention by which God is grievously offended. So to kill an innocent person, to have sexual relations outside of marriage, uh, to lie in a serious matter, to... Uh, go after other gods, uh, seeking of other gods, as the Israelites were known to do, and so on. You go down the Ten Commandments. There is, in each of the commandments, the core of them is mortal sin, and, of course, there are things which have less uh, char- lesser character to them, which can be venial sins, uh, the difference, say, between destroying somebody's reputation you know, and gossiping around the water cooler or something like that. It's more serious or absolutely serious and, uh, you know, not as serious. So those categories existed before Christ because they were given to Moses. The church has fleshed them out with her moral theology, and so we understand that a little bit better. So how did a person under the old law, and how does a person under the new law who does not have the safer, less difficult way of sacramental reconciliation, get restored to grace, having fallen from grace. They make what the church calls a perfect act of contrition. In other words, they don't do it because they're afraid of going to hell. They don't do it for social or any other reason than that they are sorry that they have offended a good God, and they seek that God's forgiveness. This was possible to the Jews. This is possible to the non-Catholic Christian. Now, justification is something we can't know that happens outside of Christianity or uh, historically outside of Judaism. But if it were to occur, it could happen there. Now, why is that a more difficult way? Because of our human egotistical motivations, our selfishness, our concern for reputation, and maybe not bringing the best ideals to our relationship with God. So a great many people are, have what's called attrition or imperfect contrition. Yeah, they know they've offended God, but they surely don't want to go to hell. And maybe they don't uh, think very much about how good God is and how much he loves them and that they've offended him. That might be uh, a rather insignificant motive to them. In the sacrament of reconciliation, the grace of the sacrament lifts that motivation up and sin is forgiven, even though in the sacrament the lesser motive is brought to the minister of Christ. That, to me, is the easier way. Outside of the church, for those who are are Christians and just through the sacrament of baptism and maintain that justice until they lose it through grave sin, they must rise to perfect contrition. Now, you described a class of people who love the Lord and, and they're very involved, they want to evangelize 
Clearly, such people have such motives. God, of course, knows the heart. We can't judge that based on the external things alone, but those are good indicators, just as they are among Catholics, of a serious Christian who wants to serve the Lord and love the Lord and bring the message of the gospel to others and not offend him and so on. Such people can get justice outside of the sacrament. But for the others, it's more difficult to the blasé Christian. Christ wants to save those too. And he gave us the sacrament to do that, that lifts that measly bit of repentance that they have and yet sanctifies it and justifies it and restores them to his, to his pleasure. So we have the easy way, they have the hard way. Um, and so I, I think on, on, that, on that point, you know, that's pretty, pretty true. And it's a comfort it's a comfort to Catholics as well. We may not ever always have access to a priest when we are sick and dying in an automobile accident. We just need to make a good act of contrition. And the typical ones that are taught to Catholics, you know, oh my God, I'm heartily sorry for having offended thee because of your just punishments, but most of all because you are so good and deserving of all my love. That is to bring us to that motive which forgives even outside of the sacrament. And the person that falls, if they make that act of contrition with the sincerity that the words express, they're justified in that moment, but they still have to go to confession because here is the reason. Christ laid it on the church as a precept that we must follow and the church must follow when he said to the apostles, who sins you forgive, they are forgiven, whose sins they are retained, uh, who, whom you retain, uh, they are retained. In other words, the church has that power. God will lift us up to save us outside of that situation, but we still, to be faithful to the gospel and to what Christ has established as the means of salvation, we then bring those to the church and not assume that, yeah, we've calculated this right and we're good enough to go. We don't do that. We come to the church, we reveal our conscience to the priest, and he helps us decide. You know, and all Catholics have heard, you know, good confession, and that's a very consoling thing to hear from a priest. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question... Call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Join a deeper conversation about the most consequential issues facing Catholics today on EWTN News In-Depth with Monse Alvarado, and you can get EWTN News In-Depth delivered to your email box with details on each week's show. Uh, simply go to EWTN.com slash In-Depth and sign up today. Congratulations to Monse. She is the newly minted president also of EWTN News. 
Um, back to the phones we go. Mary Beth, uh, Mary rather, is in Atlanta, Georgia. She's listening on the Quest. Mary, thanks for holding. You're on with Colin Donovan. Yes, my question is: mm-hmm. What happens to Catholics who leave the Catholic Church and uh, join Protestant churches and become extremely active in their Protestant churches, but have no mm-hmm. desire to become Catholic again? Sure. Um, well, everyone is an individual case, because everyone, every case depends on whether they knew and understood uh, what the Church was, even who the Church is. Uh, the mystical Christ is one image. The Bride of Christ is another. Um, and knew and understood the points that I, I just made, actually, to the previous caller who had waited from the last show, and that is that the Church has the means of salvation, which no one outside, no, no institution outside of the Church has. Now, the apostolic churches with their roots uh, in the first millennium, even those not in, in separation from Rome, such as the various Orthodox churches, they have those means as well. They, they lack communion with, uh, with, with Peter. So the church has a teaching which is morally qualified. The doctrinal teaching is that th- this is the church of Jesus Christ, and that church is united with Christ, and therefore the church is an intimate part of the plan of salvation. So you would think, what does that mean morally to the individual if they know that? They make a choice that their judgment is to leave that church and go do something else. Maybe they're scandalized. It's quite clear that a lot of people have been scandalized by the sex abuse crisis, or they're scandalized by the lukewarmness of Catholics they see around them, and they see fire in the, you know, the hearts of people in the, at the other churches and so on. God knows and understands that. But the question then still becomes, did they understand before God by an act of faith the uniqueness Pope Benedict, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, said the unicity of the relationship between Christ and the Church. If they did, then they have to repent from that, because that is a grave sin. I would guess that in the context of the 20th and 21st century, many people have left the Church poorly catechized, not knowing and understanding that, seeing zeal elsewhere and going there, uh, and never had that understanding. I can't tell that what's in their heart. God does. He knows, however. And a mortal sin unrepented from is enough. One mortal sin unrepented from is enough to end up in hell. So for those who come to that realization, we have a whole class of them which are generally called the reverts. They leave the church. They follow where their zeal is taking them elsewhere, perhaps with a lack of understanding or whatever. And then they find the doctrinal, the biblical basis of the church, and they revert. They come back home, understanding finally, for the first time maybe, that this is Christ's church, and the means of salvation are in this church, which he founded, and alone can trace its roots continuously, together with Peter and the, the roots of the Sea of Rome, back to the first century and to Christ himself. When they discover that, then they, they run into the church. 
those who have watched Journey Home have heard the multitude of stories of how that has come about in individual cases. So, yes, as a doctrinal fact, as a dogmatic truth, the church is the means of salvation, and, but if you willingly leave that, then you have to repent of that. Now, the church has what's called vincible and invincible ignorance. Vincible ignorance is the person who sort of closes one eye and they know the fact is over there and then they run after what they want to do, sort of willfully ignoring the truth and the fact. That's conquerable ignorance. They knew that the truth was there. That's even a kind of false, uh, false knowledge and, and truth. And maybe, or those who don't know that and they never have the opportunity to learn it in any clear way that they, that they accept it. Their ignorance is said to be invincible. So it's the invincible people who are perfectly innocent before God of failure to appreciate the church in which they were a member until they left. And so if, that, if their ignorance is you know, conquerable, and they, they had never, and they did know that, or they sort of knew that, and they didn't investigate it, and they didn't try to clarify their conscience, then they're guilty. But if they're outside the church because that's how they were born into a family that was Protestant or, or whatever, then, and they were, all they've ever been is scandalized by the Catholic Church, maybe because of polemics and other things in their own church, then they're probably in invincible ignorance. They're not guilty before God of this, but then that dawns on them. And once God gives them the light to see, by a glimmer even, that the truth is in the Catholic Church, the honest person follows the truth wherever it leads them, and that brings them into the church. And we see that, uh, so obviously, at EWTN, we see that time and time again. And that's a beautiful thing to see. So again, it's in the conscience of the individual and what they know and what they don't know and whether their ignorance is overcomable in the ordinary, ordinary course of things or whether uh, it's their fault. Those are the kinds of questions that God will ask them and that they can ask themselves. Scott is in the great state of Arizona. He's listening to us on Sirius XM Channel 130. Scott, you're on with Colin Donovan. Uh, good afternoon, gentlemen. Thank you very much. You're um, welcome. Quick Quick question. Um, I recently, or recently on an EWTN program, was brought to light. A uh, caller had a question about 1 Corinthians 15 29, mm -hmm. about baptizing the dead. And, um, and there was uh, somewhat of an explanation given, um, but it, it, was, it still left me with a couple questions. So I went and researched the scripture a little more and talked a little bit about it. Sounds like Paul was speaking to the Church of Cor Corinth and they were baptizing the dead. And the position that, the, that from what I've learned, is that, is that the Church has, is that we believe that there was at least the baptism of desire meant if somebody was on the road, such as a catechumen or someone in the RCA mm -hmm. program, to get baptized, and they passed away. And so there was a certain—but but I don't know, is the yeah. Church still practice that, and what no. does that look like? Okay, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints still practices that because Joseph Smith claimed he had a revelation in the 1830s, I believe it was, that told him to do this. Um, you know, oh, happy fault. Uh, 
Ancestry is a great website because of that. You can trace your ancestors back because the Mormons make a great, uh, great effort to try to find all their dead and have them baptized vicariously. This text can't refer to baptism of desire because this is people being baptized on behalf of the dead, so they're dead. They're not people uh, who died in the state of desire. I, d- uh, I don't think we can know that. I think it's likely that in their enthusiasm, the Corinthians were doing something that the church never taught or the apostles never taught. And this is the great advantage of being a part of Christ's church. Another one of the advantages besides the sacramental one and the doctrinal one uh, is that we have this whole history that shows that the church at never time, in no time in baptized the dead as if we could substitute our consciences today for the conscience of a dead person. Now, that's different than recognizing that people who die while awaiting baptism or catechumens, God respects that. That's different than, you know, the baptism of desire, which some theologians, including the International Theological Commission, suggested may be an answer to the question of the miscarriages and the, the so on and the stillborn children of Catholics who would have baptized their children, that they're that there is a baptism of desire on the parents' part, and that could substitute. This would be entirely different from that. So I think, I think it's quite clear that baptism is something that we generally make the a choice for ourselves after the age of reason, and that parents can, in a sense, well, can make that choice for children who are born, and the church has not yet affirmed the opinion that also can mate for those who die die in the womb, but I think that day will come. So I don't think it applies either to as practiced by the Mormons, and there is no evidence in the history of the church that anything other than baptism of desire and baptism of blood uh, was a vicarious baptism or a substitutionary baptism um, for for an individual. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. Steve's watching us on YouTube, and he had a couple of questions. Uh, He wanted to know if eating meat on Friday during Lent is a sin, and also if you make a promise to God and break it, are you still bound to keep it, or is it just broken? With regard to eating meat on Friday... um, Outside of Lent, you can substitute in the United States. Inside of Lent, we have that obligation in the United States, uh, but the U.S. bishops made it clear when they uh, promulgated that in the late 60s, 68, I believe, that it didn't mean to uh, that individual cases were under pain of mortal sin. However, you can look at your own heart and ask yourself, you know, am I lax? Am I indifferent to the obligation to do penance to the laws of the church? That will be the characteristic which would be sinful. You know, so it's, it's not the material violation of by eating meat on Friday that would characterize it as a sin or even a grave sin. It's the disregard for the authority of the church and the, and the obligation imposed by Christ to do penance. 
as part of the way uh, of our salvation, uh, as an obligation as Christians, as he did in setting an example which we celebrate during the 40 days of Lent, his 40 days in the desert. And what about the, if you break a promise to God, is do you have to fulfill it somewhere down the road or is it just broken? Uh, it depends on whether it's a serious promise or not, and you can go to confession and your confessor can relieve you of that, or maybe he would have to reimpose it. You know, for instance, your vows of marriage, I think he would be saying you have to go back and fulfill that promise. 833-288-EWTN. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. Deborah is in Memphis, Tennessee, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Deborah, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hi. Um, okay, here's my question. I've read the Bible seven times, cover to cover. I'm on my eighth time through. Um, tr- can you tell me where in the Bible it says about purgatory? Because somehow I'm missing it. Well, are or you I'm looking... reading the wrong Bible. I don't know. <laughs> are you looking for the word purgatory? Is that why you're confused? Yes. Yes. Uh, have you found the word Trinity in there anywhere? Yes. Where? Oh, now I don't know. I'm driving a car right now. <laughs> no, you don't find the word tr- Trinity. What we have in the Bible is we have teaching, which then, over the course of time, the Church gave names to the implications and drew conclusions from that teaching. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit the Church understands is God. Eventually, the Church fleshed out what it means to be a Trinity and what it means to be a person of the Trinity and yet have one divine nature, such as uh, the Israelites believed and the Christians believe as well. Purgatory is such a situation as well. So, for example, we see hints of it in 2 Maccabees chapter 12. Here was a case during the, uh, the uh, Greek Empire's assault upon Israel. Uh, they uh, were seeking to destroy the temple and to set up their own kingdom throughout the Middle East, as, as Alexander had largely done in parts of it already uh, well before this. This is in the 2nd century B.C. And... Judas Maccabeus, who's a, an important figure that they've done operas and things about, he, he went into battle and he found that some of his, after the battle, that some of his men superstitiously had carried amulets on them. In other words, you know, they were looking for just a little bit extra protection. They were fighting for God. They were defending Israel. They were defending the, the beliefs of Israel. So clearly it was not malicious, but this was something which was not consistent with being a good Jew. So he sent a sacrifice to the temple to be offered on their behalf, illustrating the idea that there is debt to be paid even for our lesser faults in this life. Now, already we see in the Gospel of Luke Jesus' story, the rich man and Lazarus, which we just heard here this week, past week, we, we learned about uh, the two places that they understood in the places of the dead, the place of suffering and punishment, Gehenna, we call it hell, 
the place of reward, uh, the place of the bosom of Abraham, which was not yet heaven, but which the church calls the, the limbo of the patriarchs, where the just of the old law went before Christ and before Christ ascended into heaven with all of them uh, when he ascended. And so... <coughs> This, they had, the church has fleshed that out as well when what Judaism provided was sort of the belief at some level. So in that story, we get the idea of, of hell and we get the idea of a place of beatitude, although not yet heaven as we understand it. In the Gospel of Matthew, in the story of the Sermon on the, in the, sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells this, says this to people. Settle with your opponent on the way, lest you, when you appear before the judge, you are sent into prison from which you will not be released until you have paid the last penny. Now, was he making a judgment about financial crimes? Was he making a judgment about secular justice? No. Who is the judge? He is the judge. Where is this prison? And how do you get out of it? Because we know you can't get out of hell. And so we understand that in the afterlife, there is a place of reparation for uh, sins not repaired for. Not sins which were so serious and grievous that God would say, you know, go to hell with the devil and all his angels but rather a place where they would go to be purified. All those purification texts in the Old Testament, like the sons of Levi, in the, in the I think it's, it's the book of James, where will be purified through fire. So all of those things refer to a purifying flame which is not hell and which disposes and prepares us to God. And we know this, too, from the end of the book of the Re- book of Revelation, from the very end of the Bible, where it speaks about the heavenly Jerusalem that will descend, uh, and this will, be, this will be eternity. It says, nothing enters in which is not perfect. Christ has said in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as the heavenly Father is perfect. Is at the end when he's judged, he's going to say, well, you can be a little bit imperfect, because I didn't really mean be perfect as the Father is perfect. And John didn't mean that nothing impure, enter, but a little impurity will enter in heaven. No, all impurity will be burned out and purified of us, either in this life or in the next life. And so the church gave the name of purgatory, the place of purgation, to that reality. But the evidence of the, 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 necessity, the necessity which justice demands that this be so and we only need to look at our own life and see how many ways we've been unjust and maybe we've repented, but we can't repay it. Uh, the person has died or some other thing, that pre- circumstances which pre- prevent us from res- repairing and restoring. So all of these little things add up, and the order of truth and justice in the world is disturbed because of our sins and the sins of many people. And for the new heavens and our new earth to come, at the end of the world, what is in the world at the time will be purified in that final consummation of all things. But on the way, each soul who passes, not perfect enough to go into heaven, will be purified like the sons of Levi so that they can enter into uh, the, the place where God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the saints, and the angels are.
Still time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Will is in the great state of New Jersey listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Will, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, uh, thank you. Um, I'm a Coptic Orthodox Christian, and I was wondering what the Church's perspective is on salvation for Coptic Orthodox Christians. Well, uh, you have baptism. Um, you're the Church founded by St. Mark, which all of Christendom recognizes that uh, that after he served as the Secretary of St. Peter, that he went to uh, Alexandria and founded the Church there. Uh, there have been some, of course, the great St. Athanasius was there during the uh, the time of the Arian heresy and so on. Uh, there have been certainly theological differences with both the Orthodox churches, the, the, the Greek and so on, and with the Roman church. But it's, uh, it's a true church. It's an apostolic church in those apostolic roots. It is sadly, as are the, uh, the Eastern Orthodox, out of communion with the See of St. Peter. We would love to see that day come. And I remember, you know, the good relations which different popes uh, in, you know, going back to Paul VI in particular, since that's beginning, not the beginning of my lifetime, but events that I saw the historically take place, the good relations between the Coptic Church and, and the Roman Church. So um, you go your ways, we go our ways, and God willing, uh, one day before the end of the world, as I believe Christ has promised and will happen, uh, will be once again one holy apostolic and Catholic church throughout the world. And it should be noted, as it, as also with any of our separated brethren, that that today's current manifestations of the membership of these churches are not the people that generated any schism that may have taken place? No, generally not. And I think this is what the Vatican Council recognized with regard to the Protestant churches, that the, you know, the people are born into traditions. And so from the point of view of the Catholic Church, one thing we can say about those churches with apostolic roots is that they have the character of a church, as the Second Vatican Council taught, because they have they have uh, apostolic authority. Their hierarchy are successors of the apostles, even though not in communion with Peter. They have the seven sacraments, with which all churches have, uh, and they have um, they have the the Orthodox faith. It's maybe missing some of the uh, things which Rome has through its papal magisterium confirmed as being part of the faith, but nonetheless the, the solidity of the historical faith of Christianity is there. So this is the, the has the st- structure of a church. Most of the, pro- indeed all of the Protestant churches lack these elements, and so they're considered ecclesial communities, which means that they are church-like. Some of them have two sacraments, some of them don't have any kind of uh, apostolic, most of them don't, in fact they all don't. Um, so there are defects of the character of a church in the Protestant churches, in the Anglican church and in the Lutheran church. Uh, this is not true of the, of the churches of the East and of the Coptic church, the Orthodox churches, Greek, Russian, Romanian, and so on. Uh, so that's a reality that distinguishes them and us, uh, as, as similar, 
with those apostolic origins, which are to be, you know, praise God, those have been maintained, and we look forward to the day when that full unity of the College of the Apostles, including the Bishop of Rome, is reestablished. Thanks, Will. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Matthew on YouTube writes in, Dear Colin, what is the Church's position on Our Lady as co-redemptrix, and could it be the next Marian dogma? Well, it could be, and in the 90s it was some thought that it would be. Uh, the term has been used by a number of popes. Uh, the term is probably fairly deeply embedded in the uh, understanding of the church as to what it means, a cooperative share. Uh, probably the best analogy is the one you probably heard 55 times or more on EW10 is that you know everybody understands that the pilot and the co-pilot have different authorities and there's a relationship there that the co-pilot you know, doesn't have to the running of the plane and, and what it, the getting to the destination. And so co-redemptance mean, is derived from the Latin cum for with, and that Mary's particular and unique share in the redemptive work of her son, which was a choice of the father, not Mary, uh, entitles her to some share in the works of her son. And it's the defining of that redemptive share you know, each baptized Christian can have a secondary mediation and a secondary uh, redemptive uh, activity in far as bringing people to the fruits of the redemption. Uh, the priesthood certainly has that by design. They act in, you know, in the person of Christ. But even the lay people through their baptismal priesthood can participate in the work of the redemption. It's just that Mary's isn't exceptional. Because in that sense, as a mother of God, which is the doctrine of doctrines with regard to Mary, the redemption flowed through her by her fiat. It doesn't make her greater than Christ. It doesn't make her equal to Christ. But it, co-redemptrix is meant to explain her unique cooperation that no other creature has. Not St. Joseph, not the other saints, uh, not even the clergy. And it's obvious from her motherhood relationship with the second person of the Trinity when he assumed our human nature. Uh, so, yes, I think it is dogmatizable, you might say, if that's a legitimate word. Uh, I think getting the language and the theology that explains it that doesn't uh, insult our Protestant brothers and even many Catholics who would have difficulty with it because of that particular word, redemptrix, being in there. Uh, but that may come someday. We'll we'll have to wait on that. It hasn't happened yet. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. You know, everybody knows Father Mitch Packwell. He succeeded Mother Angelica as the host of EWTN Live. Um, also, um, he's been doing open line for many, many years, but you may not know he's got another program on EWTN television every week where he breaks hope in the word on scripture and tradition. And we re-air that show Sunday afternoons at 1 p.m. Eastern time. And this week, Father Mitch explains Jesus's desire for secrecy about his mission. Christ wanted to preserve his humility and meekness and show that being Messiah is not primarily connected to performing miracles. 
That's Scripture and Tradition with Father Mitch Paqua, Sunday afternoon, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN. Next up for us is Michael in New Orleans, Louisiana, another first-time caller, listening on Catholic Community Radio. Michael, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello. Can you hear me? Uh, I can. I get a little bit of background noise there. Yeah, I'm on the interstate. That's why. Okay. But, um, can you hear me clearly? Uh, enough. Yeah, you're, you're fine. Go right ahead and ask your question. All right. Uh, my question, I guess we would call this a predestination question. Um, but my question is, did God know that Adam and Eve would sin before he created them? Or another way of thinking about it is, did God know that, uh, does God know that a particular individual would commit sin before they're created? Because that could lead into weird theological, you know, I think you get it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it, it really doesn't lead into anything weird because... It would be, if we think of it maybe from the start from the human perspective, because all of our understanding, theology is by, done by analogy. Uh, we analogize from God and the Revelation as we know it to things which would seem to be uh, connected with it. Sometimes we can go the other way and see, you know, hints of the, the truth regard. You know, for example, the family is representing, you know, in, in some respect, the Trinity or the, at least a couple and their love. Uh, and in other ways, we can go sort of the other way as well. But in this particular case, think of what parents, if a parent knew what God knew, and he did, the fate of every one of their children, would they say, well, you know, yeah, Betty's probably going to be a good kid, but uh, yeah, no, it's not going to end well for her. So I, we won't have her, so scratch her off our list. And you went down and you only had the perfect kids. Uh, and then you curated them in such a way that they could only be anything other than perfect without freedom. I, I think we would. that's a very narrow understanding of what it means to be a person, uh, that you don't have freedom, uh, that you don't have the right to even decide against your own best interests, as children will do, and every parent knows this. So God certainly knew, because he's, he's not in time, he's not in creation. Before Christ, before the world was created, he knew everyone who would ever live, and he knew the fate of everyone uh, who would ever live, and this is the, I would say, the core of the Catholic understanding of predestination and retrobation, retrobation that is knowing those who will end up in hell. And yet he will try to save all of them, even though he knows at a certain point there's a vain effort there. And so that respects the freedom because he can't create without us being, he can't create a personal creature. Even the angels, with their great intelligence and the great power of will they had, one third of them fell. The church derives that from Revelations chapter 12, the dragon sweeping a third of the stars. So even the purest creature and the mightiest creature, a third of them chose to exercise the personal freedom given them by their angelic nature badly. 
And so likewise, human beings, we might even guesstimate that it might be more than a third because we're much more frail creatures than are the angels and more subject to weakness and temptation. But in a way, that's also in our favor because we can repent and the angels can't. They're so convinced they were right. But we can change our mind and repent. And so God gives us every opportunity. He gives us all the graces. And yet he knew from the beginning who would, who would be saved and who would not. But he does that without any coercion. He, he saves us without any coercion. And if we are damned, uh, we do it because we choose it. Uh, not because God has chosen it for us, as some systems of predestination uh, teach. Uh, the Catholic one does, the Catholics do not. So, yes, the fall would have happened. Um, there's some beautiful writings, especially about Franciscans, about what would happen if the fall hadn't occurred, but they're very theoretical, and Thomas, for example, don't generally deal in the theoretical. Uh, but they're quite beautiful because they deal with uh, Colossians 1 and other texts which speak about, you know, Christ is the, you know, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, and what that means, that Christ's stamp is on the creation, is stamped on the human being, uh, even stamped in, on the angels. And so, this, and the Spirit working and accomplishing that creation of angels, man, and material creatures makes for a beautiful image of God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, in giving freedom, he knew how some would abuse it and thereby uh, separate themselves eternally from him. Uh, next stop is Greenville, South Carolina. John is listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. John, you're on with Colin Donovan. Thank you. First, I'd like to say thank you for everything you've taught me over the past few months that I've, I've listened to your program. I found it, and I'm glad I found it, and I just want to say thank you. You're welcome. But my, my, my question is, why I say the prayer to St. Michael daily a few times. Mm -hmm. Why is St. Michael the only archangel that we have a prayer for? <laughs> Well, he's one of three who has names, and so the Church would not have us pray to— uh, there is, in fact, in other lists of angels, which some of the Eastern churches, we had the, uh, the Coptic gentleman on earlier, I know the Ethiopian Church in some of their prayers list some of the other names, uh, which derive from the intertestamental period and uh, Jewish literature from those years, uh, from about 200 or so before Christ to about 100 after. And so we don't, we don't follow that. We use the names that are in Scripture. The Church recognizes, however, that there are seven archangels. And so you could, you know, ask the, the seven archangels to pray for you, for example, and that would be legitimate. In at least two churches in Rome, there are altars dedicated to the seven archangels. So we know three of their names. And the other four remain nameless until we meet them. Uh, but we may I'm pray sure to— I'm sure one of them is Colin. I doubt that. I doubt that. But that's, uh, you know, that's the reason. We say the prayer because in the 1800s, uh, it is said that uh, Pope Leo the Great, not Leo the Great, Leo the Thirteenth, uh, had a vision of St. Michael, uh, of, of uh, Satan, that would refer to a period of time, more or less a century, 
in which there would be uh, the devil would try to destroy destroy the church, um, and certainly our world wars show us he even tried to destroy the world. And so as a consequence of that, this prayer was written and was published and was said at the end of the Mass before the Second Vatican Council. Uh, when the, the Mass changed, it was generally dropped, although it wasn't certainly forbidden to be prayed. Many people pray it privately. They may pray it at the end of their rosary or in, you know, they're in need or you know, afraid of circumstances they're in, scary circumstances, whatever the reasons. Uh, but John Paul II in the 90s, uh, encouraged it being said again uh, as well. And I think within the last year or so, Pope Francis did as well. He's referred many times to the demonic in our world today. Uh, and so I think we take the need for St. Michael seriously. He is the, the angel at the head of the heavenly hosts, and we need only look around us a little bit in the church and in the world to see that we need uh, his intervention when we encounter spiritual forces because there are, they're beyond our ability to fight. And so uh, we turn to Christ, we turn to Our Lady, and also among creatures we turn to St. Michael and also to St. Joseph, who uh, uh, also uh, scares the, the bad guys as well. Andrea's on Facebook, and she wants to know, what is meant by communion with saints? Do we pray for saints or to saints? Communion means we're in union with the saints. It means a union with. We had co-redemptrix. This is co-union. We are in communion uh, with the saints, communion. And so, by grace, all of those who are in the state of justice are in communion with uh, the saints in heaven, in purgatory, and in, uh, or at least the poor souls in purgatory, since they are just, and with the just here on earth. So that communion of the saints is a powerful force for good in the world. We are united in the holy sacrifice of the Mass, especially we're united when we pray. And we can even begin our day in our morning intention that we wish to do all our prayers in union with all the saints and angels for the, for the good of souls, the salvation of souls throughout the world. On behalf of our host, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, Call screener Matt Gubensky and our social media maven today, Mr. Ace McKay. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Back at it again with Father John Tregilio on EWTN's Open Line Monday. Until we get together then, God bless. <laughs>